Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. share an LA story. I don't have many LA stories, but I've only been out here for a few years, but I want to tell this one. So I am in Culver City. This is probably July of this past summer. I'm having a work slash friend dinner with my good friends, Shelly and Bill Fariello. And we're just, you know, I do business with Shelly. Bill, her husband has worked in film and, and TV production for many, many years. So we're just having a really fun night. We're sitting outside, and then we started talking about movies and TV and, and all sorts of stuff, which we're known to do. And, you know, Bill had referenced somebody, some name, some actor or filmmaker or somebody. I forget who it was. But all of a sudden, there's a there's a gentleman at the next table. And I believe he was sitting there with his, his son. And, you know, he sort of heard the name and he leaned over and he talked to Bill and he said, I know that person. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Bill and this gentleman at the other table, they start having a conversation about the business. And it turns out that I think they actually worked on a production together, but, you know, hadn't either seen each other in a long time or had not kept in touch with each other. So anyway, we're making small talk and I'm just listening. And, and then finally, this gentleman, he introduces himself and he says his name is Rick Rosenthal. Now, you have to know this about me. I'm I'm kind of like a I, I can't explain it. I know stuff in my brain about movies that most people don't know. I know dates of movie releases. I know names of random actors and directors. It's, it's a, I guess it's a gift, but it's also, I don't know, it's kind of weird. So when he said his name was Rick Rosenthal, my radar went off. And I looked over at this guy and I'm like, wait, wait a second. You said your name is Rick Rosenthal. And he, and he looks at me and he's like, yes. And I'm like, are you the Rick Rosenthal who directed Bad Boys with Sean Penn? In 1983, I mean, who pulls that out on a on a Wednesday night in Culver City at a restaurant? It's a, it was a random poll, and the gentleman looked at me like it was a random poll, like he couldn't believe that I knew who that was. Um, and then I said, "Are you the Rick Rosenthal who directed Halloween 2 in 1981?" And I think for a minute you might have thought that I was kind of messing with you, which I wasn't. I just wanted to make sure that you were the Rick that I thought you were. So finally, you admitted it. Um, I'm glad I was right. And then, you know, I think you actually sat down with us and we talked for another hour or so. And we just made talk. You were telling us stories. You and Bill were telling stories. I will tell you, in, in this year, we're in the end of October here in 2023. It was one of the most entertaining nights I have had this year. And when I, I was sort of buzzing when I went home. And then the next morning, I'm driving to work. 
Rick had given us his phone number. He's like, let's stay in touch. We'll get together again, which, which was awesome. So the next morning, I'm, I'm at a red light driving to the office. And I, I said to myself, I got to get this guy on the podcast because I wanted to do an episode about Michael Myers this fall. I knew that it was an anniversary year for the original Halloween. And, you know, as fate would have it, I, I met the director of Halloween 2 the previous evening. There's no way I'm not going to not text this guy and get him on my show. So I got to the office. I, I texted Rick a couple hours later. He wrote me back, I want to say, in you know, 18 minutes. He was like, absolutely, let's do it. Here we are. Rick Rosenthal, welcome to Back by Popular Demand. I am thrilled that you were here. Well, thank you. And, and what a fun evening that was. And um, yeah, Bill and I, it turned out, so, so Bill was talking about a cameraman. And that piqued my interest. In, and I was like, Roy, I know him. And you know, he sort of looked at me and then I said, well, how do you know him? And then he started telling me his credits. And I was like, oh, so you worked on uh, Nasty Boys, huh? And he was like, yeah. I said, did you work on the pilot? He goes, yeah. I said, are you sure? He goes, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Why? And I said, because I directed the pilot. And, <laughs> and anyway, so then he went, oh, I thought you looked kind of familiar. But, you know, that was a long time ago. That was 1989. And wow. so a lot of water under the bridge. But yeah, it was just, you don't, you know, in, in LA, people are so guarded. And it was fun to see, to meet people who obviously shared a real enthusiasm for the film world and film work. And um, I don't know, I think we all connected because it's the work that keeps us coming back not necessarily the results or the success or failure. I would have sat there for another hour that evening. If I, if I didn't have dogs to get back to, I probably would have. And I got the sense that you would have as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially if we had had another hot fudge Sunday, which was, oh my God, maybe the best thing I've had in so long. It was really fun, Dennis. And uh, so when you said, hey, would you be willing to do this? I was like, oh, absolutely. I'd be delighted to. I am thrilled. My listeners are going to be thrilled. Um, Michael Myers and Halloween are absolutely my favorite. He's my favorite horror icon. It's my favorite horror movie and franchise. So we have much that we need to get into. But I do want to formally introduce you. Um, look, Rick is a an award-winning veteran, uh, producer, director, filmmaker. He's had a huge career. If you guys look him up on IMDb, he is he has done so many projects. He's been in the in the business for over 35 years. I do want to embarrass him for a few minutes and just call out a couple of things because I think it's really worth um, discussing. But he has directed films across a variety of genres, which is what I, I find really interesting. And I do want to press him on that. But he directed American Dreamer in 1984. Um, he directed 2005's Nearing Grace, which was a, a coming of age drama. He directed um, the post-Vietnam PTSD film Distant Thunder in 1988. He did a young adult action-adventure film called Ruskies, which I remember when, I, when it came out in 1987. And as I mentioned earlier, he directed the sequel to 1978's Halloween. He did Halloween 2, and he was brought back in 2002, where he directed Halloween Resurrection, which was one of the franchise's more successful sequels. Um, as, as Rick just mentioned, he was worked in extensively in television. He directed ABC's groundbreaking pilot, Life Goes On. He was nominated for a Directors Guild of Canada Award for Beauty and the Beast. And you served as supervising producer on Amazon's Emmy-winning series, Transparent. Rick, that's a big deal. That's a lot of stuff right there. Talk about that. I think in Hollywood, um, there are two ways to go. One is you are pigeonholed and you sort of do... Um, you know, if your first film was a horror film and it's successful, then you often stay in the horror genre. Or um, 
after Bad Boys, which was, you know, I would say a dark thriller yep. for want of a, a better genre. Um, you know, I was offered, I think, 22 uh, similar themed, dark, edgy action films. And I was like, but that's not really who I am, just the way I wasn't just a horror film director. Uh, and I ended up going to Europe and making a romantic comedy. And I loved that aspect of my career, but it thoroughly confused uh, the industry. And in fact, I've had people um, sort of have arguments with, no, no, no. The guy that directed Bad Boys is not the same guy that directed American Dreamer. I mean, look, there's no there's no connection to those. That, those are two different guys completely. Was that hard for you to do, to, to jump around from genre to genre like that? I mean, just to sidebar for a minute, how hard is that to do? Well, is it hard from a directing point of view or is it hard from a um, industry classification point of view? Sounds like the latter would be very difficult from a classification standpoint. But I guess from a directing, it doesn't really matter what kind of material it is, right? It's, it's whatever the story is. There are different kinds of directors and there are directors who go, who like to go deeper into along a genre, but stay within those uh, boundaries. Um, for whatever reason, um, I've just been always interested in a lot of different things. And and I guess it would be fair maybe to to say, well, where did that come from? Well, it, it came from starting out in college where I was a political science a major at first. And then uh, the summer of my freshman year in college, I went and I worked in Washington for a, a U.S. senator named Tom Dodd. Uh, Chris Dodd is his son, recently retired from the Senate. But so I started off working for Senator Dodd. And I came back from that experience and I went, well, it's not political science. It's the economy, stupid. And I uh, switched majors into economics. And the reason I did was because I felt so much of how policy, uh, political policy is shaped is through the economic impact of, of that policy. So that was a big shift. But not as big a shift as the following summer, I found myself in Monte Carlo teaching tennis as a tennis pro, where I had uh, wins over a couple of the Monaco Davis Cuppers. And the guy I was working for, who had coached, um, uh, he had discovered Alex Almeida, who was the number one player in the in the world uh, way back in the when was that in the uh, I guess the sixties. So I, I worked for him and he said, look, what you should do is you should drop out of college and you should stay over. You're, you're a year away from making that big jump and uh, you should stay over in Europe and play on the clay court circuit. And I said, well, the problem is uh, I was there in 1969. Nobody was dropping out of college because uh, if you did, you were ending up in Vietnam. So yeah, you're going to expose yourself. You got to be careful. Yep. So at the end of that summer, rather than staying over and, and turning pro, I spent a month traveling around, hitchhiking around Europe, where I was exposed to unbelievable art in person. I mean, I was, uh, I saw Picasso's in person. I saw Calder's in person. I saw Giacometti's in person. And then I got stuck in a shipbuilding uh, port in Italy, a town called Via Reggio, for two days. I just couldn't get a ride. Oh, wow. And, um, but I spent the two days wandering around. Uh, uh, around this shipbuilding facility where there were these huge steel hulls 
being welded and riveted. And they, the, some of the shapes reminded me of Calder sculptures. And I was like fascinated by the welding of it. And I came back to college and I was like, well, now I think I know what I want to do. I, I actually want to, I want to try to be an artist only to discover that the college I was at had no art department. I mean, they had a history of art, but they did not have any studio art. But they did let you take one course per semester anywhere in Boston at an accredited college or university. So I went down the street to MIT and I took a uh, a welding, a basic welding course uh, called, you know, Welding 101 or something. But, but uh, MIT in its um, humor dubbed it Welding for Poets. Yep. But for me, it just opened up this world uh, where I got really excited about working with my hands and shapes and colors. And and the only thing I could find that would sort of fit that was an, was a, a major uh, called Visual and Environmental Studies, which was really pre-architecture. But it had film courses and design courses and photography courses. And so that's how I ended up moving from political science to economics to uh, pre-architecture and uh, and along the way uh, learned how to load and shoot 16 millimeter cameras and and 35 still cameras and um, and then that led to a stint with the New Hampshire network the PBS uh, affiliate yep. in New Hampshire where I spent a year as a filmmaker as a documentary filmmaker and that training, shape my film career in ways I could never fathom. You come into an, a film with an idea of how it's going to be, but in the end, you only have the footage that you shot, that you generated. And so in documentaries, often there is no script, um, and you are making uh, the story based on what the footage tells you, what it yields. So yep. you're in the shower sort of thinking about footage, and suddenly you go, you know, if I cut to this and I did this – and that kind of approach really served me well as I moved from documentaries into narrative film because it's a very interesting process. You can either get hung up on, well, what, what was the script? Or you can go, well, I know that was the script, but now all I've got is the footage. And so what will the footage yield? And that's how I tend to approach um, the editing process. When you, I guess, wrapped up duties with the New Hampshire PBS affiliate, um, did you head west after that? Like, tell us how you got to, I know we're kind of jumping around here, but this is great. So I want to ask you all about your background. So what brought you out west and I guess really started your deep dive into film? So right out of college, I had applied to the American Film Institute and they were uh, a bit like one, we generally don't take uh, students right out of college and two, um, you while you have a feature script that you've written, uh, your you know your film portfolio is really not terribly uh, deep. Yeah, and then having spent a, a year making documentary films, suddenly I had a very different kind of a visual portfolio, and I reapplied to AFI. Now, I think it's I think it's a worth worthy footnote to say one of the reasons I left documentaries is I was shooting a profile of a woman artist, a painter in her 80s. And I was in, interviewing her and I was standing there with my Eclair, a 16 millimeter camera, a handheld camera on my shoulder. And she began to tell me a little bit about a story 
in her life. And it was getting very emotional. And I knew I should turn on the camera. All I needed to do was literally just bring my finger up to hit the, the on button. Yep. And I couldn't do it. I felt it was such a violation, even though it was a great moment in documentary filmmaking. And I went home having never recorded what was so powerful going, you have a big problem, dude. I mean, you had that story get away from you because you weren't <laughs> willing to go into somebody's personal life. And I suddenly began to realize, I don't think this is, um, I don't think documentary uh, filmmaking is where you're going to be comfortable because it, in, it involves so much intrusion into other people's lives. You've been nominated for several Academy Awards, you know, including 2013's Open Heart, and you were an executive producer on the critically acclaimed Won't You Be My Neighbor and numerous other documentaries. So it's interesting that you obviously pivoted from this story that you just shared and went into a huge career in narrative, but did come back to documentaries. How did that bring you back? You know, I, I came back in a different capacity. So in the documentary world, I tend to be a um, executive producer, somebody who sometimes will provide some financing when I can um, and provide some guidance and am there, uh, especially in post-production, uh, because one of the things that occurred over the course of my career was I started off, you know, running miles and miles and miles of film through a moviola and really knowing uh, how to edit only to move away from that as I directed features. And uh, but never losing sight of the process of editing as I had learned it, as we were talking through the documentary process, which is what will this film yield? And so um, one of the, just to, to look at a long arc, one of the things that happened, uh, which inter interestingly led me to producing uh, Transparent was that, uh, Jill now, Joey Soloway had this script called Afternoon Delight that she was going to um, direct as a feature, an indie feature. And I got involved with it as a, a exec producer and I did some notes for her on uh, the script. And she was very funny. She showed up in my office and she said, um, well, you know, um, I don't really want to be here. And I said, oh, OK, where would you like to be? And she said, well, I'd like to be home working on your notes. They were fantastic. Oh, wow. Said, well, don't oversell. Uh, but uh, I was not around while she was shooting the film. I was working on another project, but she asked me if I'd come into the cutting room with her. And one of the things I said, I said to her, you know, that may not be comfortable for you. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, I, I have this theory that, you know, in the end, it isn't what the director or the writer thought they had. It's what the film that they shot will let them have. And yep. so I tend to really examine that and I'm kind of brutal. And she said, no, no, I want that. And so, um, you know, the very first day, uh, it was just the director and the editor who became a really close friend of mine and me. And the first scene I saw was, you know, a very long eight minute scene that was way too long. And I said that and they said, yeah, I know, but you know, we don't have any coverage. And I said, well, I understand that, but we're still going to cut this scene. And they go, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, hang on. I just got here. Let me just see. Uh, let me just run it a couple of times. And then I ran the scene a few times back and forth. I said, okay, now I'm going to give you some uh, direct instructions 
but you've got to really cut sort of on the dotted lines that I'm giving you, okay? And then I said, you got to go here and pull this up and do that and move that back and get rid of this. And they were like, well, that's never going to work. <laughs> I said, yeah, probably not. But since we're here, why don't we just try that? And so they did it. And then all of a sudden they went, oh, my God, that works great. How would you know how to do that? That's amazing. It came from this documentary background. And then through that, and I stayed, you know, and worked with them for a while. And and um, uh, Jill won the best director at Sundance that year. Wow. When Transparent came about, she said, would you do the same thing uh, on Transparent that you did on Afternoon Delight? Will you work um, giving notes on the scripts? And then will you go into the cutting room and shape the shows? And so, uh, you know, one of my proudest moments is that uh, the first year of the show, there is an episode that is edited by a first-time editor. And, and she had been an assistant for a long time, but it was her first uh, episode that she was credited as an editor on. And Jill won, Jill won an Emmy for it. You never had a mentor in your career as a filmmaker. And that, I guess, inspired you to launch your production company, Whitewater Films, which is, I guess, I would say, like, the focus is to really um, commit to helping up-and-coming filmmakers offering them assistance and whatever advice you had. Just want to read out a couple of accolades here, but productions from Whitewater Films have been invited to Cannes Film Festival, Sundance, Toronto, South by, Tribeca, Berlin. I mean, the list goes on and on. You've won numerous awards, uh, two Independent Spirit Awards, two Crystal Bears, a Humanitas Prize, the Audience Award at South by, and a Best Director Award at Sundance. Tell us about um, Whitewater, how that came about, Um I would love to hear your thoughts about the name as well as I, I suspect there's uh, symbolism behind it. Making a film is very much like a river expedition. So, you know, you scout rapids and in film you scout locations. Yep. And from a distance, it all looks fine. It's easy to chart. Oh, we're going to go around that rock and then we'll go, uh, you know, we'll, we'll eddy out. And we'll do this and we'll do that. And, and then you get into the current. And the current is way stronger than you could tell from up above. And suddenly your best laid plans go out the window. Well, it's not too different in filmmaking. You have a schedule and you assume, oh, we're going to do this scene in four hours. You're getting hammered and you need to make a change in course direction. And you hope that the crew that you've selected on your river expedition will have all sorts of expertise and you hope that the crew you selected on your film expedition will have all sorts of expertise. And so there's always been a parallel for me. And, you know, I've always said, and, and I'm not sure I can walk this talk, but it's always been my aspiration that I want to be my best when things are at their worst. And filmmaking is all about that. Filmmaking is learning how to pivot when things aren't going quite the way you thought or um, learning. I studied acting not to be uh, an actor, but to be a better director. And um, one of the things I studied with a, a number of people, but one of the really uh, influential uh, people I studied with was a guy named Milton Katselis. And uh, Milton said, one of the most powerful things a director can say is wait a minute. And, because there's all this pressure always to move on, to move on, let's move on. Or, you know, learning how to put yourself out there and say, hang on, wait a minute, is very difficult. 
but really important. And, and I'll tell you just a tiny little story to illustrate this. I was doing um, the pilot that actually Bill was uh, on the art department for, uh, Nasty Boys. And we were in Las Vegas and we had lost the location. We were trying to find uh, we hadn't found a location. We were trying to find a location that was like an urban coliseum is too big a word, a, a, a kind of an urban space in which there would be a martial arts fight being occurring at night uh, in the back alleys lit by kerosene uh, uh, trash cans and all of that. Yep. And uh, we were three days before production and we were out with the entire company scouting for this location, which is a nightmare. And so we had three vans and we were traveling around Las Vegas trying to find this location. And, you know, I kept looking out the, the passenger seat um, and we went by this one alleyway. And it, as I looked down at it, it looked like it kind of opened up a little bit to the right and I don't know, there was something very promising about it, but I didn't say, hey, let's go check it out, you know, and and we went a second block further away. And I'm thinking, God, I really should say, wait a minute. But, you know, and then we went a fourth block. But, you know, to say wait a minute means you're going to turn this whole caravan around. And finally, block six, which is about the last block I, I had before I forgot where it was we had seen it. I yep. say, wait a minute. And everyone stops and says, what's up? And I go, well, I think we passed a alley that was promising. And they were all like, what do you mean it was promising? And how far back was it? And all that. <laughs> So we, we go back and we find this alley and we go down the alley. And sure enough, it opens to the right into a kind of small little square. And... Suddenly everyone goes, God, we could put these trash cans around here and there's a wall that we could crane up over and all that. And it became an incredibly visual scene. I mean, phenomenal. That's amazing. But it never would have come about if I hadn't learned how to say, wait a minute. I assume you like to pass this kind of uh, advice and, and experience to younger filmmakers, which is part of the mission of, of Whitewater, right? Exactly. And I feel like the the... The service of Whitewater is to be, is to not let you fail. It's not to make your film and it's not to, um, it's not to try to take over ever your film. It's to talk to you about the best way for you to make your film. And sometimes that's difficult because, you know, there's an arrogance that's needed for first time directors. Yes. A belief that, oh yeah, I can do it. And yet sometimes that arrogance can get in the way of listening um, to people who've been down that river before. So, uh, you know, I often say, you know, I will say to a filmmaker, okay, well, when you come around the corner in this river, make sure you get over to the left, because if you don't, you're going to get swallowed up by this big rapids and, and, and a sinkhole. And, you know, the director, first time director is very quick to say, yeah, 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 sure. I know. I know. And, and then you go down and as you're going around the corner, you're like, dude, you are way too close to the right. No, 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 I'm fine. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, what the, and you go, well, I was trying to warn you and sometimes they make it through and sometimes they don't, you know, but, um, our job is to try to act as a safety net 
So even if they're too close to the sinkhole, we don't let them go in it if we can avoid it. As a young director, they obviously have their vision and what they want to accomplish. But listen, knowledge is power. And if you've got that experience, why wouldn't you want to share that with them? And why wouldn't they want to learn from you, right? Yeah. And, and we've had different experiences with people of different you know, ages and, and, and arrogance and experience. And, you know, one of my favorite experiences was working with Matthew Lillard on Fat Kid Rules the World. And, you know, I just liked him so much as a human being. And um, it didn't mean we didn't argue about things. Um, we did, but it was always in the spirit of let's make the best possible. Um, we had one sort of incident where you know, I felt that he was framing a shot that was really missing an opportunity for a great shot. And he just didn't understand it. And, you know, I sort of said, well, you know, I guess you got to do what you got to do. And so, I, you know, I just sort of wandered off the set for a while because it was really hard for me to watch this missed opportunity. <laughs> I mean, it sort yeah. of hurt, you know. I don't know, the dolly grip. So my son was actually the DP on that, and he hates confrontation. And he was like, God, Dad. But – his friend, who was the dolly grip, became a pal of mine. So the dolly grip came out and goes, Rick, before we move on, I think you should tell them the shot that you wanted to frame. And so I went back and, you know, and they had, we had time enough for me to show uh, Lillard the shot, the framing that I wanted. And suddenly he went, oh, I'm sorry. I get it. I see it. I didn't see it before, but now I really see what you were going for. And visually I get it. It's so much stronger. And, you know, it was a great learning experience. And we weathered through the disconnect because we had established a respect for each other and, and, a, and a relationship. That level of trust uh, and a soft approach can get you pretty far if you approach things the right way. I shot him six times. I, I shot him in the heart. That, Santa got him very far. Come on. I shot him six times. Yeah. This guy, this man, he's not human. I do want to switch gears. I want to talk about Halloween. Let's talk about the importance of the franchise and I guess what, what I would call the legacy of Michael Myers. Halloween was released on October 27th, 1978. Scared the shit out of people, I would say. The most incredible thing, it was budgeted reportedly at $325,000. The film grossed $47 million, um, which is uh, an incredible return on investment. It became an immediate horror classic, one of the best-reviewed horror movies of all time. It led the way, I would say. It raised the bar, certainly created a, an industry. Halloween is a superlative horror masterwork, I would say. It's very visceral. It's very cinematic. What was your reaction when you first saw it? Like, Do you remember seeing Halloween for the first time? Where were you in your life? It's interesting because I was uh, I had graduated from film school. I had made this short film called The Toyer, which was based on a one-act play by Gardner McKay, which was about a woman who goes to movies by herself and then her car won't start. And this guy offers to to um, help, help her and he fixes the engine. And then he says, but it's only a bobby pin now holding the carburetor linkage. Um, you know, maybe I should follow you home. And essentially, he turns out to be the Hillside Strangler. Okay. It's, it's not violent. It's not a slasher movie. It's a very, very um, tense psychological thriller. Yep. And I had just seen the scene in an acting class I was in. And then I got a chance. So this, this is 1978. And then I got a chance to go up 
in December of 78, I believe, to rewrite a script in Toronto. And while I was there, I believe that Pauline Kale did an incredible review of Carpenter. And I remember sitting reading that and being fascinated by the review. Um, you know, little did we know that l what would happen is that I made this short film. Um, the agent who represented John Carpenter saw it and, and came to me and said, you know, I think that John, I represent John Carpenter and he's got so many offers, but this is an interesting short. And I think there's a chance that when projects come in for John that he can't do, I may be able to get you, um, you know, some meetings. Little did we know that really six months later, uh, I would get a phone call from my agent saying, hey, what do you think about doing Halloween 2? Um, there had been a director attached and he had had to drop out. And uh, my agent said, I've shown uh, John and Deborah your short film and they really dig it. And, you know, I went from how difficult it was to get a job to suddenly I was a director. <laughs> and it didn't make any sense. I was the same person. But, you know, you get that one yes. And that one yes is a, is a big change in your life. What's going through your head when you get this opportunity to direct the sequel to a critically acclaimed, massively successful horror film? Um, you know, that's question one. Part two of that is like, how do you how do you take on a project like that and try to find a way to make it your own, right? Because there's a there's obviously a very unique style that Carpenter did in in the original Halloween. I, I would say there was what I liked most about that film. There was a sort of a minimalist and a, a patient restraint that he 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 selects in, in certain parts of that film. You know, shows Michael Myers a lot. It's not a gory movie. It's a suspenseful movie. And and I think that's what worked about it. So I guess, like, how do you take a project like that and make it your own? And and were you given the latitude to do that? Well, to, just to start with the, the first part of your question, you know, how do you fill those shoes? So uh, I play quarterback in high school. And let's assume that you go to college and you're you're trying to make the team as a quarterback and the guy in front of you as an All-American Heisman Trophy winner, and he graduates. And now you're supposed to start yep. the following year. You're the starter. So are you filling his shoes, or are you taking that position and shaping it uh, to your best abilities? And so I felt very much like I had trained for this job, Um I had done, a, a, I had thrown a thousand passes just to stay on this analogy for a second. Yeah. I had, you know, handed off the ball in my sleep over and over again. I felt I was ready. I didn't feel any imposter syndrome at all. Did I think I was John Carpenter? No, I knew I wasn't John Carpenter. I was not John Carpenter. I was Rick Rosenthal and I was trying to make a film that would honor what he had made and continue actually, because it was a, it was a continuation. I wanted to continue in his style. I wanted to honor it. I had felt I understood the POV, the moving POV that represented Michael Myers. And I wanted to use that. I liked that a lot. I also felt that I had, you know, I had to name the style a little bit for me to understand it. It was really about uh, light and shadow and that, I was erring on the side of having more shadow and less light, yep. uh, perhaps in the first film, that I wanted spaces of darkness in which 
Michael Myers might be looming. And so around the edges of the frames and a lot of the uh, scenes is a lot of darkness. And it's, it's very, it creates a kind of dynamic tension, like where is Michael Myers? And so that was, you know, is that a deviation? Well, it, I don't think it's a deviation. It's just a slightly different way of getting to the same end zone. Um, I was one of three new faces in the sequel. There was me as the director, there was the first AD, and there was the production designer, Michael Riva. And Michael and I really hit it off immediately. And, um, you know, he just became a, a, a real help because he got right away the style that I was going for, which was, again, not different from, not a lot different from John's style. It just was slightly different. It was what I connected to as opposed to what John connected to. But honoring the same journey. And so my hope was that certainly in the first 20 minutes of Halloween 2, you felt like this is a continuation. And then you get to the hospital, and now you have a very different locale also, which was helpful. You know, it wasn't like I'm not trying to recreate the same suburban um, streets that John was shooting on. I'm now in a hospital, which is a very different location, with long corridors and uh, emergency lighting and uh, eerie sound and, and all of that, which, you know, I think helps sustain Halloween too, but it also gave me some room to do some things that were different from what John had done in the first one. I'm going to geek out a little bit because I, I love the first 20 minutes of Halloween too. Um, particularly the choice you made as a, as a filmmaker to show things from Michael's perspective. Um, and I think you did that pretty much like right out of the gate. I mean, there's a scene when he's walking in the alleys between the houses and, you know, Loomis is down the road and you can hear yep. the cop cars and, and you see it through Michael's mask. Like talk about um, that, that creative decisions that, that wasn't used in the first, right? I don't think it was. Not as much. Yeah. I mean, there are moments, there's moments where uh, one of the girls gets stabbed in the opening uh, that's seen through the mat. That's right. Yeah. It just felt that it gave, I mean, it's very unnerving to suddenly be in this uh, faceless point of view and to be moving um, closer and closer to innocence. And so there's a vulnerability that it's an attention created by using a point of view. Um, interestingly for me, you know, a lot of this was working subconsciously when I went to do bad boys you know, I hadn't studied point of view. I didn't really know how to name it, but I was very aware that there was a power in using uh, the point of view of your lead character. Now, in Halloween, it's not the lead character; it's the villain uh, or the or the the killer or this evil spirit or whatever you want to call it. But uh, in Hollow in in Bad Boys, I I sort of clicked on to. I want to tell this story from Sean Penn's character, Mick O'Brien's point of view. And what does that mean? I had no idea what that really meant. I mean, all I had done was use the moving point of view in Halloween 2. But I began to put together through sort of experience, not through theory, that I would that the camera would move when Sean Penn moved. And so he would get closer to people and the point of view would get closer to people but that when people move toward him, they would grow larger in the frame. And that essentially we would be on his close-up on a 40-millimeter lens, but his point of view would be a 50 or longer, which was a distinctly different visual texture. And so 
I think it had its roots in, in Halloween too, in exploring Michael Myers' point of view and feeling the power of that and the connection with the audience. And then in Bad Boys, it connected the audience to the lead character. You know, I said earlier um, at the at the start that, you know, Halloween sort of gave birth to this industry. Right. And I think when when Halloween two comes along in that this movie was released on October 30th, 1981. You know, you, now you've got Friday the 13th and that that kicked off, I think, in 1980. So now now Hollywood's kind of getting on board. Right. And I, and it seemed like the horror movies started getting a little bit more violent, a little bit, maybe a lot more gore, a lot of blood. And I think that one of the things I sort of found really fascinating when you revisit the original Halloween is that the movie's not that violent. I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's some, there's some kills, but I would say from a bloodshed perspective, very, very little. And I don't think there's a whole lot in Halloween two either. Although it seems like, you know, the kills were a little bit more in your face, a little bit more grisly. Was that a conscious decision on your part? It wasn't a decision on my part. In fact, I was actually the opposite. I was much more interested in the, um, the thriller suspense aspect of the film. And that, um, there's a scene that is not in the film anymore, but uh, it's one of my favorite scenes. And it was a scene in which we see Pam Shoup at the nurse's station late at night, lonely working there. And, uh, and then we cut to Michael Myers point of view coming into a room, which has got six beds with kids, six cribs with kids in it. And we're like, Oh my God. And, and the, in the middle of the room is a table and on the table is a wind up, uh, monkey with symbols. And as he moves forward, he, he jostles the table and all of a sudden the monkey starts hitting the cymbals and we cut to Pam Shoup and she hears in the distance, the sound of these cymbals. And so she goes, Hmm, that's strange. And she heads off down the corridor to this room and we cut to her looking, coming into through the doorway and stopping and looking around and, and all the kids are safe, but here in the middle of the room is this toy monkey, this wind-up monkey, uh, clapping the the cymbals. And then we cut to Michael Myers' point of view, and he is in the closet, and he's looking through slats of Pam Shoup. And we're like, oh, my God, he's going to burst out and kill her. And she uh, stands there very vulnerable, and then she comes forward, and she turns off the monkey and in that silence you're like oh my god oh my god and you see her one more time through michael's point of view closer and very vulnerable and then she turns and she walks out of the room and i love that scene because it was so suspenseful and yet it was asymmetric it did not lead to every time you see michael myers there's a murder and it makes you think, well, why didn't he kill her? What's going on in his brain? It gave, through osmosis, it gave him a little bit more definition uh, or possible definition as to what was going on in his head. As a viewer, we, we, don't, we don't make those connections like filmmakers do. That's fascinating that that's the reason why it wasn't used. I think it wasn't used because uh, the prevailing feeling, partially because of the change in the genre, was, well... I mean, what's the point of this scene? Who nobody dies. It's not. <laughs> it's not on topic, as it were. And I was. I argued. No, no, no. It sets up much more tension, much more suspense, because you don't know now when you see Michael. Is this going to be? Is this going to be a moment where he dies or or not? And and by the way, I, I just made this connection as we were talking. So, um, in Halloween Resurrection, uh, there is a scene where Michael Myers enters the house. 
where all the kids are. And he starts walking through. He walks. He comes in the back door. He walks through the uh, kitchen and enters into the dining room with a swinging door. And he's walking around the dining room table. And all of a sudden, as the door swings shut, it swings open again. And there's a second Michael Myers. <laughs> and the second Michael Myers begins to walk, trailing the first Michael Myers. And, and all of a sudden, there's a floor creak. And the first Michael Myers whirls around. And it's Buster Rhymes wearing the Michael Myers costume. And That's right. he thinks that the second Michael Myers is his assistant, Charlie, who was supposed to be in the garage. And he says, Charlie, what are you doing? I told you I'm the only Michael Myers here. And Michael Myers comes closer and closer and stares down at Buster, stares Buster down. And Buster says, what's the matter? Your shit don't work up here. He taps his head. And you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be one of the worst moments of slasher dumb. And and he says, again, I told you, go back to the garage and wait for me. And Michael Myers does that patented little tilt of the head, which is generally right before he snaps. Sure. And then he turns and he walks away. And, I mean, I thought it was really – I thought it was funny and tense – and it was everything different about Halloween Resurrection uh, in a scene that uh, had come before it. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that was my sensibility. And some of that was trying to come forward in Halloween 2. And given its time and the other, other films from that genre that had become more slasher films than suspense uh, horror films, um, sometimes those moments got lost. Halloween 2 comes out in 1981. You know, one of the fortunate things about my childhood is that my dad and not really my mom, but my dad let me see R-rated movies when I was pretty young, although he didn't let me see Halloween when he came out. So I do remember my, my brother's going to be thrilled that I'm telling this story, but my brother and my dad watched the original Halloween. I guess they must have watched it on, on. We had a top loading VCR at this point, so I guess they must have rented Halloween. They watched it. And then and when Myers escapes at the end after he gets shot by Loomis and he's not on the ground at the end, my, I guess my dad like just lost it. And he goes to my brother and he's like, what kind of ending is this? Like, where did, they, where did he go? Right. So then my brother's like, Dad, um, Halloween 2 comes out tonight. It, you know, it's, it's playing over in Brookfield. And my dad's like, are you, are you meaning to tell me that the sequel to this movie that we just watched is opening today? And my right. brother's like, yes, it is. And he's like, get your coat. <laughs> So they they drove to the theater. I didn't get to go, but they went to go see Halloween too, and they saw it opening weekend. But like, what's going through your your mind as a filmmaker? Right, this is this is a huge sequel. You don't have a, a background in horror, as you said earlier. Yet you were given this great opportunity. This movie opens in in October of eighty one. Like, what's going through Rick Rosenthal's head when that movie opens on Friday night? Like, are you like are you paying close attention? Like, how are you feeling about it? We had seen a sneak preview of Halloween two in North Las Vegas and. Uh, I mean, it was wild because the audience was talking to the screen. Yep. And they were saying to Jamie, get out, get out. Or there's a scene where Anna Alicia, who plays the candy striper, uh, goes to find Dr. Mixter. And she comes into his office and the doc is looking, uh, appears to be looking at his uh, aquarium. Yep. And she asks him a question and he doesn't respond. And then she turns the a chair around and he's got this hypodermic needle uh, coming out of her eye and she's shocked and she's there alone. We think 
And then slowly we realize, oh my God, Michael Myers is standing right behind her, which we had done by shielding, blocking off all the light on Michael Myers, and then slowly with a tweenie on the floor, dialing up so that at two foot candles, the audience senses something, but they don't know what it is. And then when you go from two to three to four, suddenly there he is. And, but she has no idea that he's behind her and the audience is going nuts and they're going, turn around, turn around. I mean, it was, it was very exciting, very gratifying. And in that sneak preview, as I recall, we also had the ending, which is no longer the ending of the film, but as uh, the ambulance is driving away, the film now ends on a close-up of Jamie Lee. But if you go three seconds further, what happens is this figure sits up behind her and everyone screams, including Jamie Lee, and then the sheet comes off and it's uh, Jimmy, uh, the young ambulance romantic interest and that was the that was the end. That's the Lance Guest character, right? That was the Lance Guest character's final appearance. And um, uh, that was, as I recall, that was in the sneak preview, and it played really well. You know, subsequently, for whatever reason, they decided that they wanted to go with the without reintroducing that moment. The sneak let us know that we had a film that worked, and. Um, you know, there were a lot of elements involved. I mean, uh, Dino De Laurentiis was the um, sort of uber producer. Yep. And then John and Deborah Hill. And then there was me. And everyone had different opinions. Dino was less tolerant of uh, things that took too long to build. And there were things he wanted to cut out that I knew were John and Deborah's favorite moments. So I was fighting that battle in the cutting room early on. Um but there were, you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of different elements. In the end, you know, I think the film plays um, pretty well, and I guess the word I would use is kinetics. The kinetics of the film uh, constantly worked for me. the The movement and the color and the action and the, uh, you know, there's a scene where uh, Jimmy goes to try to find uh, the head nurse. And he finds her in the operating table and um, unbeknownst to him, she's literally been bled out. So the floor is, is, is red, but we think at first when we come in, Oh, it's just red linoleum or whatever. And then uh, Jimmy goes to turn and slips and falls and gets knocked out. Um, But, you know, there were moments like that, that, that tableau when he first sees her and, um, it is, you know, it's got a real strong uh, pictorial element to it that I really liked. I'm so glad that you referenced the shot in the doctor's office when he's when when uh, the, ch- the chair turns around, he's got the needle. And I, I know exactly what shot you're talking about where Michael's in the dark. And then all of a sudden he, he slowly you start to see his face. And I there's there's shots like that. I even, I even like the scene in the beginning of the film when um, Michael needs a knife and he goes into that one house and that woman's making her sandwich for yes. her her husband, yeah. but you seem like you did like a long shot of, of Michael in the back of the kitchen from the perspective of the husband, I guess he's sitting on in front of the TV and my, yep. Michael's like really far back, but like, it's creepy the way he's just standing there behind this woman. And it's just like for a second. Right. And then he steps yep. and he steps out. Yep. Great stuff. <laughs> you know, so I had room to be able to stage and shoot things that way. I mean, there was nobody, uh, John wasn't on the set and there was nobody, um, sort of telling me how to do things. 
One of the advantages for first-time directors uh, in making a genre film is that, in general, people believe in the genre and that if you just deliver uh, the film as a complete film in a genre, it can be good, it can be bad, it can be mediocre, it can be uh, too long or too short. But the fact that it's a genre will um, save it and and it will be successful to what degree, nobody knows. Um, but there's, I think, less fear when working in genre than in any other kind of um, film in I terms of uh, control elements or looking over your shoulder or things like that. I have a bone to pick with you, Rick. So early in Halloween 2, there's this scene of the mother. She pulls up in the station wagon outside the hospital, right? This is probably like 15 minutes into this movie. And, you know, she gets, she opens up the, the, the passenger door and her son is in the passenger seat and he's got a razor blade stuck in his mouth. Obviously, it's some sort of horrible trick-or-treating experience for this kid. He probably bit into an apple and there was a blade in there. Rick, that scene, like, that that, that had like a... <laughs> A profound impact on my life as a kid. It was it was like horrifying to look at. Whose idea was that? That's just gruesome. That was John and Deborah in the script. That was something they really had. You know, I don't know the origin of it, but it was something they they really uh, felt was visceral, and it was. You know, as as witness your reaction. Um, <laughs> Dino hated that shot, and uh, he wanted it out. And I was like, Dino, I mean, I'm not in the end. You guys will have to figure it out. I just am telling you that John and Deborah feel really strongly that that's a terrific <laughs> moment. And I agree with them, but I'm just the director. So you guys will have to decide. And in the end, uh, the shot stayed. It's very powerful. It's very disturbing. Very disturbing. I, I mean, I, I was when I saw it again recently, I was like, man, I don't think they would ever have that in a movie today. And obviously, there's plenty of grotesque um, violence in a lot of horror movies today. But even something like that with a kid, it just sort of feels like uh, that's a product of the early 80s where a shot like that can be can be had in a movie like this without there being much fanfare. But I'm not sure if that would happen today. You know, a couple of things. One is uh, Halloween 2. You know, it was made on a budget of $2.5 which is what I read. I think it grossed north of $25 million. So, like, was that, was that considered for you a, a success at the time? Or was it, would everybody involved, were they pleased with the results? That was considered a success. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the kind of success that the first one was, given the given – the, uh, I'm not sure that budget figure is correct, by the way. I, I think it was made for quite a bit less than that, as I recall, but I can't specifically remember. I mean, it was a very, it was a very short shoot and it was, you know, it was tight. There wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was, there were no luxuries. You know, I never left the set. I mean, the idea of, of, I don't remember uh, trailers. There must've been a room somewhere, but I never saw one. Interesting. Okay. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just a fantastic person to work with especially in those days, you know, very much gung ho and uh, sort of the emotional leader of the, of the film. And, uh, you know, I only saw her get really upset once. And that was in one of the hospital, we had three different locations for the interior of the hospital. And one of them was near the airport. And I had, when we scouted it, I had said, Hey guys, you know, we got a plane every couple of minutes here. And they were like, no, no, that's the bad weather pattern. It doesn't happen very often. Well, it turned out, no, that was the good weather pattern. The bad weather pattern was literally nonstop, 30 seconds in between planes going overhead. And we ended up having to put somebody on the roof to, to cue us when there'd be some space so that we could try to get a take in. Oh, wow. And that's the only time I've ever seen Jamie frustrated. I mean, it was just so difficult to get through 
the scene. In all other circumstances, she was such a trooper and such a, uh, you know, enthusiastic leader. And um, uh, I had studied, um, again, as I mentioned, with Milton Kutselis. And, and uh, coincidentally, that's where a number of the actors came from, was from my acting class. Uh, but Milton had said to me one day, I'll never forget this, it's probably 40-some-odd years ago, he had said, hey, Rick, do you know the etymology of the word enthusiasm? And I knew he was Greek, so I said, well, I'm sure it's Greek. And he said, it's Greek, you know. And I said, okay, lay it on me. And he said, "N," which means from, and theos, which means God. So he said, I, uh, I translate enthusiasm as a gift from the gods. Wow. And I was like, Fuck me, what a great <laughs> definition and what an aspiration to achieve in your life to be the enthusiastic person. Now, I'm not always able to walk that talk, but going back to I like to be at my best when things are at their worst, that's, you know, those two things are tied together. And uh, Jamie personified enthusiasm. Did you know it when you were working with her that this was a performer that was going to have the career that she had? I mean, she was still so very, very young. And and I say that, you know, through the eyes of just seeing her on, on FX's The Bear this past summer. And she yep. was phenomenal and probably going to win a, an award for her performance. Um, and did you see that? Did you Are you surprised by it or no? I'm, I'm not surprised by it, but no. I mean, there was no way to tell in that role that she would have the chops. And also, I think that... You know, I think Jamie's grown so much as a, as a person, uh, yep. her life experiences. And, you know, I go back to, uh, I think one of her best performances is True Lies. Uh, she's just phenomenal. But then you go, okay, well, how about A Fish Called Wanda? Oh, my God, she's phenomenal on that, too. Yep. So not when I was directing her in Halloween 2, but, you know, the fact that she was talented and then had this sort of life experience and she has really connected her life i think to let it deepen her acting uh it, it's really fun to see my big question to you is why has michael myers endured the way he has right i mean i guess after your film um the studio decided to make a, a third film that they didn't feature him and i guess I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on why that was decided but this is a franchise that's been rebooted a few different times you obviously came back in 2002 on resurrection. But after that, you know, the Rob zombie era happened and he made his, his take on the films. And then David Gordon green showed up years later, not that long ago. And he's done his three films, but like, what is it about Michael Myers that has, has maybe outlasted everybody else? Well, I think that Michael Myers is sort of represents impenetrable evil. And that's really scary. You know, one of the things that somebody sent me an, an artist friend of mine just sent me, um, is that they discovered in this recent terrorist attack that Hamas's terrorists were taking a drug that uh, is meth combined with something else that obliterates your conscience. Jeez. By the way, I'm sure that there are lots of other people, uh, warriors who have used this drug before. But uh, what I'm trying to get at is this idea of soullessness. And um, Michael Myers, I think, has come to uh, represent this really scary soullessness that you cannot reason with, that is, you know, evil in a way that is just, uh, in, as I said in before, impenetrable. And 
You know, one of the moments that I feel is so powerful in Halloween 2 is when Jamie Lee finally ends up shooting him in the eyes in the hospital and he begins to bleed. Yep. Logic, obviously, is is thrown out for sort of symbolism and, and, and visual uh, impact. But I found it so powerful that he bleeds from his eyeballs and uh i don't know it's it's pretty disturbing image i think why has he uh endured because we put a lot on him as the audience and he is sort of every person's uh nightmare of terror and uh a nightmare of evil and in uh some of the other movies uh, freddy uh you know the persona is obvious and apparent and it has uh, character here there's a kind of absence of characters there's an absence of soul there's an absence of heart and and that uh, is scary and it endures i think like there was a slice of life that was very clear in halloween and obviously halloween too because it's the same evening where you're, you're you're spending time with these very likable characters right i mean obviously loomis is uh, sort of a different part of that, but you got Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends and like, you like these kids they're their kids living their lives. Right. And I think the, the later films, it just sort of felt like um, the villains in the Freddy movies and the Jason movies, the villain, the villains sort of take front and center. And I think the characters are just, they're like throwaway cardboard characters. And I don't feel that in Halloween too. And I don't feel that in the first one. Is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say, but you know, a lot of that has to do with casting too. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, uh, a number of the uh, people in Halloween 2 come from my acting class. And, um, for example, uh, Gloria Gifford, who plays the head nurse, um, you know, I, I read the script and it just talks about sort of the hard-edged, tough uh, head nurse. And, you know, I immediately thought of Gloria because I had seen her act. I knew her pretty well, and I thought she would bring that uh, to, the, to the role, the fact that she was African-American. I felt, you know, the casting was basically colorblind and I liked that about it. And I think it gave, uh, first of all, Gloria will tell you, I mean, she believes it broke the, 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 uh, color barrier in, in, uh, genre horror films. But, um, I think that you look at, you know, Leo Rossi who plays Bud, the ambulance driver yep. and I were, you know, we were great friends in acting class. We did a bunch of scenes together as actors and, and Alicia, Again, a friend from acting class. And I, I just felt uh, John Zenda, who shows up as the d- assistant deputy. Um, these were people I knew really well. And I knew I was going into a film as a first-time director. And I, I wanted to know that I could count on some people with shorthand. And one of the places to do that was with actors that I knew I wanted to have strong um, – I wanted them to bring a strong characterization. But I wouldn't have a lot of time to talk to them. Uh, about their characters. So I felt it would be really smart to cast people I knew and I had a shorthand with, and and none of them let me down. They all really were terrific in that. You guys all went in the raft together and because there were people that you trusted, right? Yeah, very much. Did you watch the rest of the movies? Like after, after you stepped down on Halloween two, did you like stay committed to the franchise? I know you came back in, in 2002. Um, but like, did you watch the others? Are you still into horror or is it not really a genre that you follow today? I did not see a single film, a Halloween film after Halloween two until my wife was in, uh, H2O. Yep. And then, you know, I saw that film. I went to the um, premiere and I saw that film. And at the after party, 
I'm, I uh, start talking with this guy named Paul Freeman, who turned out to be the producer of uh, H2O. And, and for whatever reason, Paul and I just hit it off. And, you know, I went, I left, went home and thought nothing of it. Uh, I don't know how long after that I got a call uh, from Paul. And he said, hey, we're looking for a director for this Halloween resurrection. Would you be interested? And I said, I've learned never to say never. You know, <laughs> I'd like to read the script. And what I liked about the script was it was sort of different. I mean, it was all of, it was the beginning of the digital world. Yep. And I, I really liked that. That really appealed to me. And I really embraced that. And, you know, we had 21 digital cameras uh, recording on the set. So each of the characters was wearing a digital camera. And then we had uh, surveillance cameras. And I hired somebody who had actually been a student of mine out of AFI to be the digital camera director. You know, so she was watching all of the digital cameras, making sure that we were getting as much out of them as we could. Um, so I like that aspect of it. And then uh, I was involved uh, with a TV show at the time, and I had to do the two-part uh, season finale. And I said to Paul, I know this is a crazy idea, but I mean, I'll, I'll come up and prep. Then I got to go away for like, uh, I don't know, almost a month. And uh, But in the interim, I like Michael Riva, who was – the production designer from the Halloween two is still a really close friend. He'll stay up and sort of um, be my eyes and ears and, and point of view and keep moving forward so that we can keep prepping. And if you're willing to do that, then I'm good with that. And um, Paul said, yeah, I think that, I think I can make that work out. And he did. And I loved working with him. I mean, he taught me a lot about producing. I've got to say Paul Freeman did. I mean, he, he would come to me and say, so Rick, what exactly are you trying to get out of this take? And I would tell him, and he would say one of two things. He would say either, oh, I think I saw that on the last take. Or he would say, oh, that's good. Let's get that. And that was his way of saying either, I think you've got it and we should move on <laughs> and keep shooting. But he never, he never lied to me. He never would say, oh, I saw that one. In fact, it was clear it wasn't there. And then sometimes I would say to him, uh, okay, but I'd like to do one more. And then he would say, okay, but just one, Rick. And as a result, I really trusted him. And we had a terrific relationship, which enabled me to give him the skinny on everything that I was concerned about. You know, a lot of times as a director, if you don't trust the producer or you feel the producer is just going to go right to this studio or whatever, you, you keep your, your cards pretty close to your vest. With Paul, I really felt he was partnering with me and he was trying to get ahead of problems. And I really learned from that. I mean, there's a film I did in 2008 that I, or nine, whenever it was, that I really felt that became my role as a producer. I produced it. I didn't direct it. And first time director. And I felt like my job is to get out in front and to try to uh, anticipate problems before they could even become problems. I'm glad you referenced your wife, Nancy, earlier. You're talking about Nancy Stevens, who played Marion in, in Halloween and Halloween 2, and, and she shows up in some of the later later sequels. Did you guys, I guess, like fall in love on the set of Halloween 2? How did that come about, if you don't mind me asking? Well, we like to keep the mythology going that we met on the set of Halloween 2 and fell madly in love. So <laughs> that's the official version. You okay. know? But, the, but the truth is that uh, I met Nancy... When I was in film school at the AFI and she had come to watch 
uh, a movie called Sullivan's Travels, a, a Preston Sturgis movie. And um, she arrived at the uh, AFI when it was at Greystone to find that the film, which was supposed to screen at four, had screened in the morning. And instead, what was going on was a Christmas party. So she was, uh, she's a very beautiful woman, and she made her entrance uh, walking down the, the, the grand stairway at, uh, the, at Greystone Mansion. And I was down in the foyer where the reception was for the Christmas party. And I was standing talking to Frank Danielle, who was the Czech head of the AFI at the time, was a, at the time, a, a Czech filmmaker in his late sixties. And, and we both watched as the door opened and this very attractive woman stopped at the, at the landing. And then, um, she sort of looked down in, in a little bit of disgust at the party that was going on. <laughs> and then she began to do her sort of model walk down the stairway. And she was wearing, you know, a, a leather aviator jacket and tight jeans and a, and a blue and black and yellow, uh, plaid, uh, flannel, faded flannel shirt. And she was a vision. And Frank Danielle and I both watched her descend. And then he leaned toward me and he said, you know, Rick, you cannot sleep with all the women in the world, but it is your duty to try. And he pushed me toward Nancy Stevens. And so Nancy and I talked a little bit and, and she said, you know, I'm not here for any fucking Christmas party. And I said, well, why are you here? And she said, well, I, I came to see Sullivan's Travels, and now I hear it screened this morning. And I said, you want to see Sullivan's Travels? And she said, yeah. And I said, stay here. And I ran up to the administration office, and I said, what would it take to screen Sullivan's Travels in the East screening room, which was a tiny screening room? Yep. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll have it set up for you in 10 minutes. That's amazing. And on my way down the steps, there was a guy, uh, I hadn't liked him in college, and I didn't like him any better at the AFI, and he said, Rick, I hear you're screening Sullivan's Travels. And I said, not now, Jeff. Uh, and he said, no, I have to see the film. And I said, Jeff, I got something going on here. Let's not get in the way here. And he said, no, no, I have Anyway, uh, the lights go down. The film starts, pan across, Jeff Rush, Nancy Stevens, Rick Rosenthal. Wow. So that's how I met that's how I met Nancy originally and uh basically I just all I wanted was her phone number which I got and then I didn't wait the uh the etiquette 48 hours or whatever I called her the next day and some guy answered the phone and I was like oh man you got to be fucking kidding me but he was he was way too disinterested in who I was turned out that she lived she had a bunch of roommates and she lived in a house in in uh, kind of lower Hancock Park and and then we start going out. That's amazing. And now you guys have three kids, right? Three kids and three grandkids. I think your son was what was who you were with at dinner, right? My younger son. Yeah. My older son is a cinematographer and uh, we've worked together on a number of projects. And that's a, that's a great uh, pleasure to work with your, with your offspring. And my daughter is a, is a director who just graduated from AFI and now has a one-year-old baby. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. Are there any upcoming projects from Whitewater Films? And I, and I would encourage everybody to please follow Whitewater Films on Instagram. Rick does a lot of short videos there. And I, what are you working on right now? Is there anything that we can anticipate? Well, there, there's stuff, but I mean, I got to tell you, this is the most difficult time in independent film I've ever seen. Yep. And 
you know, you talk to the big agents at CAA and WME and UTA and, and Synetic and Submarine, and they're all befuddled by, you know, how do we get through this period of time? I mean, there's uh, still a lot of content being made right now, but it's really hard to sell films right now. And nobody quite knows, well, where do we sell them and to whom and uh, all of that. So, um, so we have turned a little bit more toward television. And uh, a couple of years ago, we did uh, an indie half hour pilot um, called Halfway There about a halfway house for sober living. Okay. And it, it did everything we wanted it to do. It, it uh, was invited to Sundance and it won the audience award and the best uh, dramatic pilot at a series fest. Uh, and, and it did everything we wanted it to do except sell. Unbelievable. That was with um, Isai Morales, right? Isai Morales and Matthew Lillard and Matt O'Leary. And I mean, a wonderful group of people. And, you know, made very much in this spirit of indie films. And uh, my first AD came out of retirement just to kind of hang out. Uh, my son Noah shot it. Uh, we have two really good projects in TV. One of them is Fat Kid Rules the World as a television series, which uh, we're trying really hard. We have a phenomenal um, deck. Uh, in fact, uh, if you go to uh, fatkidtv.com, um, you can really see a lot of what's, what we're trying to do. Got it. Um, and then we have a, a series based on uh, a, a number of Tom McGuane uh, novels um, that we're developing as a TV series. And I continue to develop a film. Um, we have a film that is about to go, uh, we think, I mean, it all depends on this strike, but... Of course, um, yeah. Uh, we have a film that seems to have found its financing, very small, a million-dollar film, but a, a, a wonderful story about a guy who goes back to his high school reunion and is misidentified. Uh, he's an, he's an Asian-American. There were only uh, four other Asian-Americans in his class, and here we are 25 years later, and when he walks in, he's misidentified as another Asian-American who has, in the interim, become a very mysterious uh, billionaire of whom there are no photographs. And when he tries to uh, protest, no, no, I'm not that guy. They go, it's okay. We know, um, you know, and so it's very much like a male version of Cinderella. And I think it's terrific. It's a first time uh, writer director, and I'm trying to uh, make it a whitewater film and bring, uh, you know, various people to help him. Um, but I have high hopes for that. Uh, and then we have a number of other films we're involved with, but it's, um, it's very difficult. It's, uh, and I'm a guy who, you know, tries to stay enthusiastic. It's harder than ever before. Now, will it shake out eventually? Um, I think so, but I think it's going to be a while before we can figure out, uh, what budgets films, uh, need to be at. Uh, right now they are, are either extremely high yep. or extremely low. And we still need to find, avenues for films that are in the middle, you know, the $2 million to $8 million films or whatever that you need to tell interesting uh, stories. I mean, one of the problems is that in the indie distribution world, the distributors are saying, well, we just, you know, we can't sell these films. And so they need to be made for less money. But one of the reasons you can't sell them is that they're competing now with, 
you know, $12 million hour episodes of streaming series. And so if you go and you cut the indie films to the bone, they can't compete. So you have a little bit right now of self-fulfilling prophecy and, um, it's a loop that's going to be difficult to get out. Of. Yeah, it's this convergence of legacy and, and streaming media, and it's 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 squeezing out storytelling. Right, these adult films that we just don't seem to get anymore. They just they don't get made. Right, and it's either these big giant blockbusters or these very very small budgeted films. But obviously, the amount of money being spent in streaming is making it far more complicated. I I hope these actors get back to work. We're we're recording this on Friday, and I really do hope that there's been some chatter this over the last forty eight hours that they're going to get a deal done this week. So let's 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 hope that would definitely be great. The last question I'll have for you is uh, looking back at your very impressive career. Um, is there a highlight, you know, for you, you know, looking back, is there anything specific that you're most proud of? It could be a film. It could just be your reputation, but you seem like such a nice guy. No, I'm not a nice guy. I mean, I'm a ho- hockey player. And so sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm tempted to pull the jersey over your head, uh, which has not served me well. But um, no, as I as I look back, I mean, <laughs> I always think when somebody asks you looking back, there's a great, there's a great quote from, from uh, Butch Cassidy. Uh, no, from uh, uh, shit. Now I'm going to blow this quote. It's from um, Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. And uh, Clyde is asked, if you had it to do all over again, would you do it the same way? And he says, hell no, I wouldn't rob banks in the, in the state I lived in. That way I could go home and sleep at night. <laughs> So I've, I've always loved that as a quote, but you know, I've had, I've had such a blessed career in the sense that um, I've worked on, on films all over the, all over the country and all over the world. I mean, if, if there was one, you know, film that stood out as just so much fun constantly, it was American dreamer in spending six months in Paris and working with Joe Beth and Tom Conti and yep. Giancarlo Giannini, who's just a phenomenal guy. And then, Doug Chapin, who was the producer and who looked at um, who looked at Bad Boys and went, this guy can do comedy, and you know that was uh, remarkable to have somebody, um, you know, sort of and and met me and we we had a, a an incredible a working relationship, Doug and I did, and um, that was uh, and and I learned a lot about producing from him as well, um, but. Um, you know, and then I look at uh, making uh, the pilot and staying on the series of Life Goes On, which was, you know, a really important, of course. Uh, profoundly uh, powerful series for so many people. Because it wasn't just about uh, families with Down syndrome uh, kids. It was also about families with kids who felt they were the underdog. Yeah. And that was so important to us. And some of those relationships. Uh, I mean, I would say... You know, boiling it down, um, it comes down to uh, looking back, are the relationships formed over the course of making all these films? Uh, Michael Riva, sadly, no longer with us, but, you know, just one of the best guys ever. And so many other people that I've worked with that I've just thoroughly enjoyed. And um, I remember, you know, going to uh, the second year of Life Goes On, I would drive into uh, Warner's Lot. And I would think as I drove in, who am I going to have lunch with today? And and I would think, you know, I could go and have lunch with the writers. My brother-in-law is one of the writers and a, and a classmate of mine from Harvard is one of the writers. Or I could go down on the set where most of the crew is uh, people that, I've, I, that I hired. The cameraman is a guy I got into the union and is still one of my best friends. 
where I could go to the editing rooms where, God, those editors were all people I had hired. They're all great. Uh, a number of them have gone on to become really outstanding editors. Um, or I could go over to the mixing stage where there's this guy, Walt, who's just one of the all-time great guys. Uh, so, you know, when you have that kind of uh, opportunity uh, when you're working in your place of work, it's it's pretty exciting. And then to feel like, and with all of that, we're making this terrific show. Uh, and we were we were often left alone to really um, innovate as we wanted to innovate. That was really an exciting time as well. You sort of echo my sentiment on working in entertainment marketing in my entire career. And, you know, I mentioned Shelly and Bill earlier. Um, I've only known Shelly for a couple of years. I got introduced to her, do my job and we had breakfast. But I remember, and I've said this to her recently, like I remember when I sat down with her for the very first time at breakfast, as soon as we started talking, I just knew this was somebody that I just, I wish I had said this. I wish I knew you 20 years ago. We just had this immediate connection and shorthand. You know, she introduced me to Bill. I had dinner with Bill. And then obviously, you know, I had dinner with them again recently. And that's when you showed up. So it's just this weird serendipitous um, element to this industry that I, I really love because it's all about the people, the work can come and go. And you're going to work on some fun projects. You're going to work on some ones that are, aren't as successful, but it's the people that you always remember. And given your your successes and, and the longevity of your career, I really appreciate you giving me 90 minutes of your time to kind of tell your story and, and, and for us to listen to your perspective on filmmaking. Thank you from bottom of my heart. I really, really appreciate this conversation. This was an absolute blast to have. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And, um, you know, let's hope that we can have another 20 or so years in the entertainment business as well. Let's hope. Um, Everybody, Rick is doing an Instagram live on on the Whitewater Films on Instagram. He's doing that on this coming Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific. Rick, anything you want to tell us about that? I mean, I'm assuming you're going to talk a bit about your experiences on the film. Absolutely. We're fielding questions. And if you go on, you can uh, you can send the questions in ahead of time or you can uh you can go with me live and uh, type in questions and uh, i hope to uh, see a lot of you there the halloween movies were a huge part of my childhood my best friend steve and i to this day rick still say i shot him six times to each other we say it all the time <laughs> my big brother would uh he would chase us around the house when we were little he always pretended to be the shape which is what michael myers is always known as he was known as the shape so everybody if you ever see the shape standing in your backyard under a clothesline you might want to call the police or maybe call dr loomis call somebody but uh rick this was an absolute blast thank you again for your time everybody uh thanks for listening as always we'll be back in a few weeks rick an absolute pleasure thank you so much great thanks dennis take care